I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a major reinsurance broking CEO at the top of his game. A quarter has passed since the completion of the purchase of Willis Re by Gallagher and the integration of the third largest reinsurance broker in the world into Gallagher Re. Global CEO James Kent is clearly buzzing with energy and enthusiasm for the job in hand and the prospects that new ownership and investment are going to open up for his business. In this podcast, we talk about how Willis Re managed to hold itself together during the interminable Aon Willis merger saga, the state of the reinsurance market, and the new business's ambitious growth plans. I've known James for many years and think this encounter is a great snapshot of a team leader who has come through a trial and is absolutely delighted to be out on the other side and very much looking forward to the future. I highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Well, James, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Well, we're sitting here in Gallagher's office in London. Now you're part of the Gallagher organisation. What are your first impressions? What are the first differences that you've noticed about being part of a Gallagher business versus being part of a Willis business or WCW business? Thank you, Mark, and really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you on the podcast. Yes, it's great to be here. It's great to have a firm landing, so to speak, after two years of what has been a rather standstill existence. And it's been a great place to land. You know, the most important thing is what's right for the two key stakeholders in our relationship. That's our clients and that's our colleagues. And what we've found is rather than perhaps what you referred to there as the Gallagher organisation, they would say it's the Gallagher family. And it does feel very much like a family orientated business, but it's absolutely a sales business. It's very entrepreneurial. And it's been a fascinating 90 days or just over 90 days where we've been made to feel incredibly welcome, part of the business a lot of scrutiny on the business and how we're going to grow together. But it is ultimately a sales organisation that is led at the top by brokers. And that for us is something that resonates particularly well with our clients and colleagues. I think from a reinsurance specific point of view, it's been a great opportunity getting to know what was the, originally the Capscombe Re business became Gallagher Re, within seven years built themselves to the fifth largest reinsurance broker in the world, which is an extraordinary achievement from a standing start only seven or eight years ago. And the great thing about that is if you look at the two businesses together, Mark, one is very much product-based. That's entirely natural. That's how that business was built, by building cells of product expertise. So that's the legacy capsicum. Correct. And then you had the original willis Reed business, which through nearly 200 years of history was very much a regional business with product expertise overlapped across that. And when you look at the strengths of the two organizations, the areas where Gallagher had a particular strength, whether that was around marine business, around cyber business, around a, a surety business in Latin America, whether it was around a, a mortgage business, whether it was around the marine business, that where you would think there was a lot of overlap with Legacy Willis Re. In fact, the two businesses are very complementary. So we feel really good about the way that maps out for our clients and colleagues. So it fits because they had particularly designed themselves to not have to clash with the big three reinsurance brokers. I presume that they were always trying to occupy these niches, which is why now that you're coming together, you don't clash. That's right. And you can look at something like the legacy Gallagher Re business and think, well, it was attached to a retail business. But when Capscom Re was formed, that was just pure standalone reinsurance broking. So you're naturally going to hire those producers and those teams that are able to build businesses without the need for retail ownership. And that's what's happened. And as a consequence, you know, you have got that area where there's very little overlap between the two businesses and uh, very excited about bringing those together. 
obviously you've come through 90 days and that's often a bit like a stock taking point so any concrete changes that you can say in the way that you're going to organize your business now that you're a Gallagher family company what we're trying to do is for everyone to see that we're on this journey there isn't a firework moment where we're making changes to the business that are overly dramatic but at the same time you know we've got some key fundamentals in terms of what we're seeking to address with the bringing together of the two businesses first of all they are two very good businesses and we want them to become one very special business together we're not fixing something that's broken what we're looking to do is build this very special business from two very strong foundations the second thing we're seeking to do is along this lines of product expertise and regions we're looking to overlap everything where a P&L will never get in the way of us best serving our clients. So this idea of a client-centric, client-focused organisation where product meets region, irrespective of where those assets might reside within Gallagher Re, to best serve our clients. The third piece is we are seeking to have a global and large complex clients group, which is how we want to best serve those clients because we have to bring one Gallagher Re to those clients they have multiple operations around the world and the last thing any client needs in that situation is different parts of the organization speaking with a different voice and then the final piece is about bringing talent through the organization yeah so that global thing is i suppose that's that very small number of very large clients that are very globalized but of course they're in practically every country in the world and you have to service them all at their hq but also in their subsidiary locations all over the world as well that's right that's exactly it it doesn't make a client not on that list any less important it's just we do have 95 percent of the clients that we have around the world are, are regional focused often monoline when you're trading with a client that has multiple jurisdictions and multiple business lines you need to bring the entirety of Gallagher Reed to that organization and quite honestly the entirety of Gallagher that's where we're seeking to have those strategic partnerships with those large firms where there is multiple touch points within the Gallagher organization to manage those firms Obviously, I've known what was the legacy Willis Ree for a very long time, and obviously been talking to you over a very long period of time, probably the last 15 years. I've always known what was the legacy Willis Ree as very much like a, quite an independent, I think it's probably wrong to say maverick, but it was very much felt like an independent universe within Willis. Is it going to be very much like an independent sort of, will you keep that same sort of feel and culture, or are you going to try and build something that's going to blend in more with the Gallagher family way of doing things? I think based on some experience I've had, Maverick's not a bad word with some of my my colleagues. No, it's been very clear in the first 90 days that Gallagher wants to present this one Gallagher as part of the business going forward. There always has to be, Mark, this very clear, clearly defined boundaries between retail and reinsurance. The regulators will insist on that, and rightly so, and we want that as well. But that doesn't stop you having a strategic partnership with your retail colleagues. And this might sound like spin 90 days in, but I can genuinely say that in 90 days we've had greater interaction with our retail colleagues in terms of how we can seek to partner to better serve our clients. And it is very much how can we help you? We want Gallagher to be as successful as we possibly can. And that that feeds through the organisation. You can feel it. So I think, Mark, it really comes back to this point about a broking firm run by brokers. That is the way that the business is driven from the top. It's a sales focus from the very top of the organisation. And that feeds down. But, again, I want to come back to this regulatory piece. At some point, the reinsurance business has to stand on its own and serve clients with the advice and the counsel that is right for that client, not just right for the organisation. Because your client is 
is always an insurance company buying reinsurance at some point. Correct. Correct. Client is king. Absolutely. So in terms of that, it's been a difficult couple of years. Um, <laughs> how did you come through all of that? I mean, what was it that held you all together when it was hard enough just reporting on what was happening at different times, you know, with so many different permutations and combinations and a bit of a sort of, I can imagine it has been a bit of an emotional roller coaster and difficult to be the leader when everyone's asking you, James, what the hell's happening probably from one week to the next. Anyway, how did you keep it all together uh, during this tortuous saga that's played itself out? Yeah, I think when you go to management school, you, you're not trained to go what we went through for the last couple of years. But, you know, if you work for a public company, the fact of the matter is at any point you can be sold. That's the reality of the commercial world. But I don't think any of us were necessarily expecting that to happen when we joined Willisbury as was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. But it happened. I'm a great believer in leadership being for everyone. So while you're being very kind and saying you held it together, I didn't hold it together. The company held itself together. And everyone became leaders at that point. What I did try to install is a couple of really key messages, which was around perspective and resilience. You know, we're all in this together. And while it was uncertain times, let's be very clear, we were going through the COVID lockdowns, you had the key workers and everything that they were dealing with in terms of uncertainty. At the end of the day, we weren't going through that ourselves. We just had an uncertain future. And if we stuck together, then the outcome was going to be better. The worst thing that could have happened is just break into a thousand pieces and go off into the different directions. That would have been a gross failure. So, you know, you can't over communicate at those times. My communication went up, which you can argue lockdown in a funny sort of way might have helped that because we suddenly went to teams or other methods of communicating around the world. I do think adversity brings people together. Some people run from adversity, some people run towards it. And you really sense someone's character at times of challenge rather than, it's very easy to walk around with a smile on your face when times are good. It's when, you know, how are we getting through this at a challenging time? And that's what we did together. And then the the final piece, I spoke about two key stakeholders. What we tried to do with the organisation, and I'm so grateful for the leadership teams around the world in terms of the support they gave around this, let's focus on each other. So focus on your colleagues and focus on your clients. Do not forget that our clients need us at this time. And us sitting in a corner of a room or at home as we were, most people in lockdown, feeling sorry for ourselves is not going to best serve our clients. So let's focus on those two. And we came through it. There was some breakage and, you know, people read about that in the paper. But it's pretty amazing how the business held together. And when you trust each other and you back each other and you communicate, it's been a gratifying time for me. So maybe having that COVID crisis, you know, just to focus your mind and say, well, at least I can get on with this and stop worrying about other stuff. Because actually we've got things right in front of us that we need to deal with right now. And presumably all of your insurance customers had a huge amount for you to help deal with in relation to their reinsurers. Yeah, you know, again, the clients were facing at at one time, and maybe we'll get to this later in the podcast, we're talking about how big that was potentially as an insured event for the industry. Yeah, you know, we communicated, or I communicated on a weekly basis with an update, and a lot of it often wasn't around actually our industry, it was around, you know, what's happening out there in the world. And there were a lot of responses that came back, and it was amazing how many colleagues had spouses or partners or children or parents that were impacted by COVID that were working in key worker positions. And I just felt it brought the community together. I don't want to overstate this. At the end of the day, we're doing insurance and reinsurance. But that communication, a colleague said to me right at the beginning, you can't over communicate at a time like that. And I think he was absolutely right. 
Actually, we might as well let's get the COVID out of the way because it seems it's gone very, very quiet. Obviously, we know that COVID is an ongoing live peril, is you know not in people's contract, it's not in policies and not in reinsurance contracts as of when it was excluded. But that legacy COVID, it seems to have gone very quiet and it's become like a dead number. You know, where if I was a claims broker, I think the claims department of the people I'd advise that claim to would be all in the phone to me saying, "Well, what can I do with this reserve? It's sort of been sitting dead for you know dormant for." three or four, five quarters now, what's happened to it? If you step back and take March 2020 as a point where COVID really became known as this global event, by April next month, we're going to be stepping into the 10th quarter since that was a known event, albeit very unknown from how big a loss it could be. There was some work done relatively quickly after lockdown in terms of the potential outcomes. And I remember at the time there were... In fact, it was a very good report done by yourselves. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, again, distractions, right? Let's distract <laughs> each other. Let's not think about the bird. Yeah. What, what are we doing here? And, you know, the range at that time was from 30 billion up to, I think, one got as high as 150 billion. I can remember 120 billion. So a massive range. And obviously, you know, 120 billion would have been the largest event to have impact our industry. So... It doesn't appear to be that way, but to your point about this stalling, there are so many cases that remain unresolved in the primary market and, you know, questions about coverage or not in the original forms. I was on the phone earlier this morning to a client in Australia and they still have many unknown lost situations related to COVID around business interruption. So until that clarity comes through, I don't think anyone in the industry can be certain in terms of what that insured loss might look like. I think there is confidence given that a number of court cases have, I don't want to use the word favoured, but have supported the industry position in terms of contract language, that it's not that black swan, that 120 billion, that 150 billion type event. But it's still an unforeseen event. No one three years ago was talking about a pandemic and the fact that we would have that type of coverage in those, particularly the small business type scenarios. It certainly was a life reinsurance mortality event, but not anything else. Exactly. The PNC market wasn't underwritten on that basis and it certainly wasn't priced on that basis you know what we are seeing there are claims collections going on and we have collected millions and millions of dollars of claims for our clients the situation where that has been straightforward is where it is around a defined jurisdiction generally a single country and where it is very clear that cover is blown and as a consequence those claims are getting paid but there's a long way to go out if i took a scenario of that 30 billion to that 120 billion mark I think it's closer to 30 than it is 120, and 40 to 50 seems to be where the industry is settling at the moment. The key being that that is being settled over multiple quarters, which gives the industry a break in terms of having to manage that claim. Great. Well, when the announcement of the Gallagher takeover announcement came out, there's a lot of certainly mentioned very specifically about a sustained investment in reinsurance broking. What's that investment going to be going into? I think, um, first of all, we have to earn that right. Coming back to being owned by a sales organisation, there are very clear demands, metrics, call it what you want, Mark, around if we are going to invest in you, we need to see how that return is going to be made. We were talking earlier about the differences. Is that different from what you're used to? No, no, no. I think any organisation we've been with has been a sales organisation. You you can't just turn up with a budget that's not properly costed. Exactly, exactly. You know, I want to be very clear on this podcast. WTW was a very strong and great business for Willis Reed. There's no games going on here about playing one organisation off the other. What does happen is when you go through an integration and a merger, as we just 
done, it does give you an opportunity to reset and look at where areas of investment are required. And on top of that, you are bringing two reinsurance businesses together. You know, there might have been a difference in size, but there's also a very big difference in history. So that difference in size is understandable, but we need to look at how are we best investing on a go-forward basis. I think the most obvious area is talent. I know it's a very easy answer to give you, Mark, but we want to be a platform where we attract talent. And I can say unequivocally in 90 days, the pipeline around talent has got really, really interesting. And it's not just going to the most obvious places where you think to hire. I think that becomes almost a lazy way. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't hire from the competition, but what we're seeking to do is find areas of talent to come in. But that comes with that point about what is my return on that investment. The second piece is technology. On that point, though, would you say now, obviously, what happened was with Aon Willis, the original announcement two and a bit years ago, it sort of fired the starting pistol on a lot of other brokers who perhaps weren't as present in reinsurance broking. Yeah. And obviously had always had an ambition to be so. Sure. But it unleashed investment, significant investment from them to go out and try and build themselves reinsurance broking. Everything was shaken up and now things have started to settle. And in fact, you coming over to Gallagher is perhaps part of that settling process. Do you think that there's an opportunity there to take some of those people back effectively and to offer them a better alternative now that everything's settled? Probably answer that in a politically correct way, which is to say, I just hope that Gallagher and I trust that Gallagher will become an employer of choice. Very easy words to say, but I genuinely feel that we fill a gap that is slightly unique, where we have a global footprint, but we have significant headroom to grow, associated with a very entrepreneurial culture. The Gallagher culture is incredibly strong, and that's the thing when the organisations were coming together, is the combining of two different businesses where one felt you know, very strong affinity with its culture. I can speak for Willis Ree that we felt a very strong affinity with our culture. So two organisations thinking the same way, but driving that forward as an even better culture. So I just hope that we are a a company that attracts talent for the right reasons because talent sees it as the right home. And that can be big, that can be small, but that can be equally outside the typical places where brokers have hired. But it's the imperative, therefore, to grow. If you're going to attract a a younger broker, they'll know that I won't have to wait for a dead man's shoes type situation to happen because we'll be growing new bits and I'll be able to get promotion and uh, advance my career without having to wait for someone else to retire, for example. You're obviously listening to our town hall because (laughs) a a major... um, But the imperative there is you do have to, you've got to deliver that growth, haven't you, otherwise? Sure. I don't want to oversee a business that doesn't grow. You are going to have periods where you have peak growth and you're going to have periods where you have lesser growth. In my career with Willis Ree, in terms of leading a business, going back historically, there was one year that we went backwards and it was a horrible year. That was before I was leaving the firm. That was when I was in North America, Willis Ree did actually grow that year but that was one year we went backwards and it's something that I never really want to repeat but you are going to have peaks and troughs. I think the point that you're making about how do we bring talent through the organisation Mark is something we're looking at is creating an office of the chairman through each of the regions where we're seeking to create a home for senior talent where they can focus really on three things clients, growth and mentoring but it allows new leadership roles to be created by moving individuals into that office of the chairman where we can allow talent to come through and take on leadership roles with that mentoring going on from the chair level. I think it's it's a win-win for the organisation. It puts your most senior brokers client-facing, focused on the clients, not wrapped up in process. 
and it allows emerging talent to come through and test themselves on leadership without having to sink or swim. So, you know, for us, that's a very clear thing. The other thing about talent is all the emerging risks that are coming through the market and where you've typically gone for your P&C reinsurance broker. With these emerging risks and with these different aspects of capital that comes in to support the industry today, the talent that we're talking to is very different. So in that sense, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity to go out and hire from different areas. Well, certainly there's so many, you know, I'm spending a lot of time doing podcast interviews with people who are in this incredibly fast-growing verticals and maybe just servicing those incredibly high growth verticals with fairly vanilla insurance products but they're not vanilla because they're difficult if they're in the crypto space or if they're in the cannabis space just getting dno for something that's about to ipo it's really difficult and it suddenly doesn't sound like vanilla insurance anymore even though if the product is actually dno but you almost have to create a whole new market and of course the growth is almost exponential when you talk about that investment in mentoring is that something that you're actually going to, you know, back that up with saying to people that you, yeah, one day a week or whatever it is, you know, you have something structured for those senior staff to say, right, here is a plan, you know, there is time budgeted for you to mentor. Yeah, no, our L&D program has actually been very deep and very disciplined. And my hat is off to those colleagues that really built that program. We built it from ground up and built it in-house. And as far as the mentoring is concerned, it really falls into two areas. We have a mentoring program in place, but we've actually taken that further with something called sponsorship. And there is a difference between mentoring and sponsorship. Mentoring is more around overseeing the individual and and ensuring that individual is in a good place as a human being and gives that colleague the opportunity to be satisfied and have the best chance of a happy, long career. Sponsoring goes much further than that. That is about helping define that person through their career goals and we've got this sponsoring program in place where we take accountability we have senior folks whether it's you know we have a female sponsoring program in place around future female leaders and it's all about creating accountability not only for the person that's being sponsored but the senior person doing that sponsoring and it's something that we will roll out more and more and more and creating that connectivity at different levels of the organization so sponsoring is like being even more of an advocate for that person. Mentors yes. just helping them when Absolutely. they come and ask you. But sponsors, it's just saying, right, I'm going to take this person. I'm going to push them and I want them to have goals. And I want them to do that. And I'm going to get measured on it as well. Absolutely. Right. Obviously, another part of this investment drive is going to have to go in technology, isn't it? Because that's a contractual obligation at some point. Some of your legacy technology is going to be WTW related and the license will expire at some point in the future in a few years. So, What's top of your sort of tech list? I suppose, is it nice to be able to start from scratch? Yes. In a way, the acquisition does allow you to stop, sense check, look where we were going, look what Gallagher has today, and establish the best way forward. It really falls, I would say our technology focus really falls into two pieces. One is data availability. Everyone that you speak to, Mark, I'm sure will tell you about the power of harnessing data. And then the other piece is how we actually run our business, how we service our clients, service our markets. And that's having a client and market-facing ecosystem. So on the first piece around data availability, it's the use of that data that's helping us transform our view of risk. You know, you look at that coupled with the, you know, unmodeled cat risk, impact of climate change, emerging risks such as cyber, pandemic life. It means that those technology advancements need to be agile to ensure that we continue to meet client demand in those particular areas. But we also have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to address our legacy infrastructures 
and build that client and market facing ecosystem that will serve our clients from placement right through to the end servicing and think of it as one-stop shopping. And with data is that where you could see some potential collaboration with obviously the huge amount of data that you're going to get from having a retail network? I'm amazed at how good Gallagher's data is. They probably wouldn't thank me for saying that, but it's a compliment. Well, because it could potentially be very fragmented because the company that's acquired hundreds of... That's the point. Yeah, 50 (laughs) acquisitions a year and you've got a handle on this data. How do you do that? And it's really very impressive in terms of their carrier data. Yeah, so that's going to be a part of it. And what do you mean by an ecosystem? I think that's an interesting word that you hear in the insurtech circles. Yeah, but can you go into what you see that as being in a practical sense, perhaps for an insurance company client of yours, when they log in, do they see lots of things? Put simply, Mark, end-to-end servicing. And it's interesting you mentioned InsureTech because I think InsureTech is part of this answer. I don't think brokers as a rule are good at building technology. I don't think we should be building technology. And therefore, there are two ways forward. You either borrow or you buy. Because to me, building, which is the third B, is out of the question. So having an end-to-end system that supports clients, ease of use. We can't talk about being a client-centric structure when we're thinking about production and we think about placement if we're not thinking about the third piece which is the servicing and having that excellence of servicing that ease of use I always say that when you go to an RFP your client servicing isn't going to win you the RFP on its own but boy can you lose clients very quickly if you don't get the servicing right so this opportunity to reset to use everything that we can learn from Gallagher everything that we can learn from Legacy Legacy Willis Re our InsureTech piece which I, I'm biased I believe I think we have one of the great insure tech businesses and minds in our business and the ability to lean on that for third party joint ventures is very exciting and the point about technology yes it creates an investment but if you talk to you know our chief operating officer you talk to technology people within the broader Gallagher organization technology actually leads you to be a more efficient and it can have a materially good impact on our business. We can become more efficient, but we can also become more effective from a fiscal basis where we can drive efficiency through our business that ultimately is going to make us a more profitable business. That's going to make a happy owner if we can do that. So you sort of have a vision of a client, an insurance company client, being able to log on to a system and start looking around and saying, well, I hadn't really thought about my cyber exposures in this way. Here's something over here. And they've got a holistic place where they can sort of come and sort of play around with a Gallagher-y sort of kind of a metaverse or something. I think that's probably one step further. I'm thinking more of the servicing end-to-end, but what you've just outlined there is using technology, and in that particular example in cyber, where we've got excellent market share, outstanding team, and feel that there's a just a wonderful opportunity there to help grow that market for the industry as a whole. That comes back to what we're calling our view of risk, and that is an important piece where we're helping clients shape their own view of risk. It might be slightly different to us, but you're challenging the client in terms of their view of risk and how they're going to measure that risk and how they're going to manage that risk and ultimately how they're going to mitigate part of that risk as well. Um, It'd be crazy to have you on the show and not talk about mid-year renewals, everything that's coming up. How are you preparing your clients for the mid-year renewals? What sort of messaging? You know, How are you going to manage their expectations? I would describe the reinsurance market today, Mark, as one that's logical. It's a word we've used in our reinsurance reports. It's a very rational market. And what do we mean by that? Given technology that we've just spoken about, it has allowed reinsurers a better opportunity to differentiate client by client. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a market that is responding on a client by client basis, irrespective of region, irrespective of product line. 
and where performance is better, then we're seeing pricing reflect that. And where performance is worse, we're seeing a reduction in capacity available and as a consequence, pricing moving up. So in that sense, it's very rational. It's been interesting to hear a couple of the reinsurers in terms of their financial year reporting at year end and they get to the analyst calls and they're asked about seeding commissions on liability lines. And they are pretty strident that given what has happened in the original rating environment and there are lines of business that are going through their fourth and fifth iteration of meaningful rate increases, reinsurers can get themselves to a position where they're comfortable offering an increase in seeding commission, which typically hasn't happened, Mark. You know, we go through, we're not in a hard market by any form, but we're in a market that's had the COVID losses, it's had five years of cat, and typically that would have bled into the liability lines and how reinsurers are pricing that risk, but it hasn't. And I think that comes back to technology where it has supported reinsurers looking at each and every client and understanding that client well enough to be able to provide what I would call private terms and what i mean by private terms is each and every client generates their own terms everything's bespoke so it's yeah. good, for, good for brokers then because you have to broke everything and you have to come you can't just say it's 10 percent across the board sorry chaps you come with reasons why back they don't need an increase at all in fact they need a reduction they could have higher seeding commission or whatever so absolutely and any broker will tell you that they you know they are treating their client on their own it's a bespoke service and and i think genuinely we are in that market and i think it makes our industry better as a result of that and presumably also the insurance industry is in a much better place to negotiate harder would you say because they've retained they've had their benefit from all this uh, four or five years now of price rises they may believe that they're baking in profits that they don't have to see to reinsurers do you feel that is the insurance industry ready to retain more if it doesn't feel it's being dealt with fairly by the reinsurers? Do you think the might, demand might slack off? I think, Mark, that, that again is going to vary client by client and their own view of risk. A lot of CEOs and boards will say to you that they don't want more volatility on their balance sheet at this time. And let's be clear, the world's in a volatile place right now. And reinsurance does a great job of dampening earnings and also helping manage capital. So it depends on the what that client's view of risk is. What I would say is that, again, back to these earnings, the earnings season that we've been through, if you go to the primary markets, they will say with increasing confidence that given the rate changes that have gone on, they are exceeding loss cost by some distance with the pricing that they're achieving in the original market. And as a consequence, I think there would be more confidence retaining risk. But actually, given the way that reinsurers have acted in a rational manner, Given the fact that they are prepared to offer better terms to clients on the basis of that underlying profitability, actually the reinsurance market has been relatively steady over the last two to three renewal cycles and clients haven't made that big change. The last time I saw a really big change in the market was after 2006 where there was this massive spike in pricing following KRW and we saw companies consolidating their reinsurance programs and running much, much higher nets themselves. We haven't been through that here. And I just think, given most insurance companies' desire not to have more volatility on their balance sheet, at the moment we're seeing buying patterns in 2022 to continue. Maybe an exception to all of this has been CAT, the discovery and the sort of the prominence of secondary perils. What's it going to take to change reinsurers' view of CAT risk? Because they're talking as if it's not just price. It's about re-evaluating a better understanding and perhaps a more forward-looking understanding of cat risk, perhaps taking into account things like climate change. Say if markets are driven by fear or greed, you know, we're certainly in the fearful stage of cat. No one's sort of saying, oh, I'll fill my boots at these prices or willing to take that risk in the same sense that they might have done in 2006, for example. 
Is it because the prices haven't really gone up enough? Or is it genuinely that view of risk has changed? What's your gut feeling on it? So it's not a capacity-constrained market, Mark, other than in certain areas. And I think you've referenced, you almost got to the point where it's almost a a two-tier market. Is it price or is it appetite? And you can argue that one drives the other. What we have seen is that the market is seeking to move away from frequency. So if you look at areas that are most constrained at the moment, it would be aggregate covers because there has been a frequency of loss that means the aggregates have been impacted. Pro rata, which naturally brings a frequency of loss. And then you've got the other part of the market, which is the UNL occurrence. And above a certain level, that market, again, is very rational. It hasn't seen the losses that perhaps have grabbed the headlines. And the results on those programs have been pretty good. So there is not an issue at this point in terms of filling out capacity on those mid to upper levels. The challenge is perhaps the lower levels or areas where the ILS market had a particular prevalence. And the ILS market has retreated to some extent, not completely. Let's be clear, the ILS market is a core part of the property cad offering. But just in that lower level area where perhaps the ILS market were very strong, that is a more challenged area of the market. Let's say that a lot of that was collateralized retro, which was ILS capital. Mm -hmm. Is there any sign of relief there of more capital wanted to come in and play now that obviously prices have come up quite a lot? It's a little bit early to say, but again, I think you have that two-tier market. You've got the aggregate retro, very difficult. Low attaching retro, expensive and difficult. But it's not to say it can't get done. There have been some opportunistic markets that have offered to step back in. That just becomes a price management issue with the client. But on the mid to higher occurrence layers, which is where the traditional market was more focused, that's been relatively consistent. It's up. And then there's cap bonds as well. And the cap bond market, it kind of gets bucketed together with all the ILS. But cap bond has been a really vibrant part of our industry now for 15 years and it's growing. And at this point, the cap bond market is vibrant. So that is another area where retro capacity can be garnered. So it's pretty healthy. Yeah. Another thing that's been really interesting, I've been doing lots of podcasts with people doing this, in the world of MGA sourcing their own capital or businesses that are setting up to incubate MGAs and act as a transformer between them and the reinsurance market. There's been a huge amount of growth in this. Is this an exciting area for you guys as well? What's your impression of it? Do you think this is a temporary thing? Or do you think this is some part of a big secular change? Because it seems to be quite big, the opportunity. And one wonders why people haven't done this before. I do think it's an exciting area, but I'd also describe it as an eyes wide open area. Your point that you made about raising capital and underwriting risk themselves... I think is a huge step forward for that part of the business. I think unless an MGA is going to come with a truly niche product and a niche area where it is effective for the distribution and it is adding something to the market that the traditional paper can't provide, then I think you have to stop and say, well, what is this MGA here for? So we're very excited about it. There's a tremendous opportunity there. There's no question that it allows capital to access risk more efficiently than a standalone rated carrier, as was the case two decades ago. So there are multiple ways that capital can access that risk. And the investors themselves are attracted to the more efficient models due to better than average performance from the leaner and more capital efficient infrastructures. In some ways, it's not entirely new because you've had advanced traditional reinsurers or forward thinking reinsurers. Nothing ever seems that new. It just surprises me that it seems to have come in such a wave and what's really behind it. 
I think it's the ability for people to think in an entrepreneurial manner and work in that kind of efficient, flexible manner where they are more in control of their future destiny than perhaps they would be in a bricks and mortar. Was it partly maybe because now they've got the data? Data. They can prove that they're profitable and they can go to anyone and say, back me. Wealth creation, clearly. It's easier in something that you own than something owned by someone else. So so there's all those things, but it's it is an area that we're excited about. I do think it's also a real positive that the rating agencies have come out and said they are going to be looking at the MGA carriers in terms of where they are and where they're going. A lot of people don't like regulation, and I understand overly regulating an industry can be very stifling. But equally, an area that's under-regulated, something goes bang and people look back in five years' time and go, well, how on earth did that happen? It was, you know, yeah, I had Bronick on the show saying, Bronick Maziado, yeah. formerly of Hiscox, saying exactly that. Well, I was asking, why did where's, we have all this growth in MGAs? So, well, look at where the regulation has been. It's yeah. been on me, not on the MGAs. Yeah, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. And there has to be a balance there. But is there a place for MGAs in terms of the fact that they offer an area where capital can flow too quickly? They can operate these lean and efficient models. They can access distribution very efficiently. And they can partner through various facilities, whether it's fronting, whether it's binders, whatever that might be, to allow the traditional insurance and reinsurance companies to access that business. Then that's got to be a good model. That's capitalism. That's distribution. But at the same time, it has to be regulated. And this idea that MGAs are going to take more of their own risk-bearing balance sheets, I think, can only be a good thing, Mark. We'd be able to summarise that MGAs are keeping you busy um, with <laughs> yes. all their requests for capital, and etc. And you're setting up facilities for them. Sounds like they will be keeping you busy. And something else that's very much looking to the future, but it's been around for a long time, parametric insurance. We've been writing about it and talking about it a lot. But just now, particularly on the back of the InsureTech boom, and also the availability now of satellite data that is very specific and seems to be the new arrays of satellites are getting cheaper and cheaper to launch and they're becoming more and more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. Recently, I've just done a podcast with a business that's raised more than $100 million for pure parametric model and not being a risk carrier in that world. What really opened my eyes was such a large number. That $100 million is not to be risk capital, that's not sit on a balance sheet and underwrite with, that's for talent. It just seemed to be an enormous number. So again, do you see, is that another one of your lines in your future budget that you're thinking, wow, we've got to invest here because parametric insurance is really going to take over the world? Their premise was certainly that all commercial insurance is going to have some parametric element to it within 10 years' time or something. But, you know, that may be over-optimistic, I presume, but I don't know what you feel about it. Well, we spoke about cap bonds and the vibrancy of that market. And if you look at the emergence of the cap bond market, that started largely, not exclusively. Yeah, it's a it's parametric started, business. It's a yeah. parametric business. And it has evolved into what is more of what I would call a UNL type cover. I think where we get excited about parametric is the expansion of the ILS sector beyond just property cat risk. And we look at, I mentioned life earlier, I mentioned cyber earlier, liability lines, motor, and the creation of a parametric industry to support those different lines is an area where we are working closely between the different teams to make sure we're at the forefront of the emergence of that risk. Because that, to us, is how we will start to extend capital available to our clients in those other business lines. Yes, again, and your job there is to go and source that capital, which is probably going to mean a different sort of capital than traditional uh, balance sheet capital. That's right. It comes back right to the beginning, Mark, which is where are we looking for talent? 
and different talent is going to bring different skills and different viewpoints that is going to challenge us, challenge our clients, challenge our markets in terms of how we access capital for our clients, which is ultimately one of the key jobs that we do. Well, James, we've run out of time and I've come through all my questions. I just want to thank you for giving up the time. You must be incredibly busy, obviously, integrating and planning for the future and doing all sorts of things. And as now as part of the Gallagher family. So I wish you all the best with the future. And obviously, I want you to come back and tell us all about it at some point in the future as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Real pleasure to see you and um, appreciate the opportunity again. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>